So when we think about the importance of this, I, I think I've told you that when I was in class, Dr. R.C. Sproul did exactly that same quiz to us. And for me, I was a brand new believer, um, so didn't know a lot about the Scriptures. And so I get picked on first. He looks right at me. What's the Eighth Commandment? You know, and uh, goes, you know, I blurted out some wrong answer. And then he goes to two other students, three of us in a row, couldn't name the commandments that he asked. These are pastoral students that are preparing to lead God's people, right? Not very encouraging. Well, we do value the Ten Commandments. Maybe we don't show it all the time by how well we recite them, but uh, we can also be guilty to bypass the preface to the Ten Commandments and not recognize how important that is to establishing the context of even having these commands. The Westminster Divines even give us two questions in the Shorter Catechism to demonstrate the importance of the preface itself. The first question, 43, very simple. What is the preface of the Ten Commandments? I'm going to read that in a little bit, so I won't read it twice. Uh, The second question, 44, says, what does the preface to the Ten Commandments teach us? The preface to the Ten Commandments teaches us that because God is the Lord and our God and Redeemer, therefore we are bound to keep all His commandments. Now, the preface helps us to answer this question, which is the sermon title, Who is the law giver? Now, if we read the preface in context, I do want to back up into uh, chapter 19, starting in verse 16, so then we'll come down to verses 1 and 2 in chapter 20. So if you'd follow along, beginning in Exodus uh, 19, verse 16, uh, we will hear God's Word together. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud and the mount, on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain now mount sinai was wrapped in smoke because the lord had descended on it in fire the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to, the mount, up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us the ten words. We thank you for the fact that your spirit can use them in significant ways in our lives as they are the revelation of your character. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us 
into a truthful understanding of who our God is, the one who gave us these laws that we might know you, that we might reflect your character, that we might know our need for Jesus, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Can you imagine being Moses on Mount Sinai and just talking to God? Imagine being Israel and standing at the foot of Mount Sinai with all of the thunder, with all of the the lightning, with the trumpets blasting. It would be simultaneously terrifying and exhilarating. Do you ever wonder if our worship lacks something because we don't have these outward signs of the holiness of God? Very often, unbelievers will demand signs like this before they're going to believe in God. Well, I mean, we do have the eyewitness testimony of those that saw these outward signs, and we know that in a court of law, eyewitness testimony is some of the very strongest that can be uh, given in a court case. Let's also think about in the New Testament, what it would be like to be one of the disciples, spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year with Jesus, walking with him, seeing his miracles personally, seeing how much he loves you and seeing it in his eyes. That's a powerful thing. Now, Thomas did see Jesus. And he saw him crucified. And even though he had eyewitness testimony, he would not believe until Jesus called his bluff and allowed him to touch his resurrection body. And after he believed, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you believe that the Lord God is the one that delivered to us these ten commandments, though you have not seen these outward signs of His holiness? Well, this preface is provided so that we would know who is the law giver. He reveals His person and His work. And so let's answer these two questions. First, who is the Lord? And second, what did the Lord do? So first, who is the Lord? Verse 1 again says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. Dr. R.C. Sproul was asked uh, by an interviewer, What is the greatest need of people in our culture today? And he said, To know who God is. The interviewer went on and asked him, what is the greatest need that all Christians have today? You'll be surprised by his answer, to know who the Lord is. Who is the Lord that met Moses on the mountain and revealed his character in these ten words, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments? Well, first we see that he is a speaking God. It said God spoke all these 
words. God is not some deistic entity that created the universe like a clock, wound it up, and then, you know, just abandoned it to just tick away, right? No, our God revealed Himself to His people. He walked with Adam in the cool of the day, and He talked with him. He spoke to Noah and to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David, to the prophets, and to many others. At the time that he delivered the Decalogue, his people, the Lord revealed his glorious self to them by speaking directly to them. We know from the preface to the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. Now, we only know our God in a saving way because He revealed Himself through His Word and personally by His Holy Spirit. His Spirit raised From spiritual death, every believer's heart gave us the faith to believe in Jesus alone, gave us hearts to believe and wills to obey. It is not just the God that we worship, but we worship my God. And we learn, secondly, that He is the personal God. Verse 2 says, I am the Lord, your God. He reveals Himself to have a relationship with His people. He made us in His image to multiply His image throughout the entire universe to bring Himself glory. But we failed through Adam to obey the Lord and His image was broken. Not annihilated, but indeed broken. The Lord further demonstrates His personal character through His plan of redemption. He displays His grace in redeeming Adam and Eve and promising to the sly serpent, Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise His heel. This plan of redemption that God is now revealing and working out through His people out of whom the Messiah, God's promised Savior, would come. God personally committed Himself to redeem us from sin, death, and the devil's bondage. Now, in this way, we believe in a covenant God. First, we saw a speaking God, a personal God, and thirdly, a covenant God. Verse 2 again says, I am the Lord your God. And if we read... In the broader context of the book of Exodus, the Lord spoke to Moses his personal covenant name in Exodus chapter 3. Moses was being commanded by God to go to Pharaoh and to uh, demand that God's people be let go so that they might worship him. And of course, Moses really wanted to know, who should I say is calling? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, This, he said, say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you. That was the Lord's personal name, the name Yahweh. And so when the Lord said, I 
am the Lord your God. He is not merely just saying, it's me. Right? He is reminding them of the covenant nature of this God who redeemed them, the one that saved them, the one that brought them out of bondage in Egypt. Now, you see, the Ten Commandments has a very specific purpose and they function as the stipulations within the covenant design. We have the very first part of the covenant structure in the preamble, which is identifying the people in the covenant, the Lord and His people, right? Then we have the historical prologue, which identifies the history, right, of the relationship. I'm the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? So he's establishing that. We'll get to that in a moment. And then we have the stipulations, which is the whole list of those commandments, followed by the sanctions and the oaths, which follow later in the book of Exodus. And so these stipulations emphasize that obedience to the Lord, who is making this covenant, is what is required of the party who's entering into the covenant with the Lord. Now, I understand the actual word covenant is not in the verses that we read, so we have to go towards the end of Exodus. I mean, it's in the beginning, but it's also at the end in chapter 34 when it says, and the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. Wait, I've read that somewhere before. That's right, it happens later in the New Testament. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Our God is making a promise, and we believe in a promise-keeping God, a covenant-making God. He unites himself to his people, personally committing himself to the work of redemption. We always have to view the Decalogue not as a way into fellowship with the Lord, but as those who are already part of fellowship with the Lord, how we can live out that relationship. Now, sadly, we know that as sinners, our hearts uh, lose that distinction relatively quickly, right? We believe that we can please God through our obedience, and it devolves into earning God's favor, right? We falsely treat our relationship with God more like a business relationship. Lord, if I do this for you, will you answer this prayer, right? We start to barter a little bit with him. That's what our hearts naturally do. We may sadly look at God's commands as a way of him getting us what we really want, because it's not him. It's he's just the one that gets us what we really want, Now, thankfully, the Lord already knows our hearts, right? He already anticipates exactly how we're going to respond to Him. And so, uh, He gives us um, the focus on idolatry as the very first command, right? He demands that we shall have no other gods before Him. Now, I'm not taking any thunder from next Sunday night's message, but just to show how inseparably linked the preface is with the very first commandment. Now, God also targets our legalistic tendencies, reminding us in the preface about His work. And first we learn about His person, and now we're going to learn about His work. So we answered first, who is the Lord? And second, what did He do? The end of verse 2, it says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, the Exodus was the salvation event par excellence in the Old Testament. 
Right? Prior to the cross work of Jesus in the new, God constantly was referring to his salvation of his people during the time of the Exodus. It says in Isaiah 43, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. He redeemed us from death and bondage to make a new humanity that reflects His holiness and His righteousness. And so we learn first, what did the Lord do? He conquered death. God's people were suffering incredibly in Egypt. A Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, right, came to power kind of scratched his head about this privileged status that these Jews had, counted them and realized, boy, if they rebel, I'm in trouble. So, ah, workforce, bam, let's just enslave them. And it worked. Boom, they created all the things uh, of Egypt, all these amazing buildings, all this stuff, this amazing workforce uh, that he enslaved. Now, the life that they knew under Joseph is dead. And all they know now is, is slavery. They were beaten. Many were killed. Egypt in the Bible is always symbolic of death. And so when the Lord is saying that He is going to redeem them out of Egypt, He is redeeming them out of death itself. He raised them from the dead life of Egypt to bring them to life in the promised land. But the Lord did not only conquer death, secondly, He also freed slaves. Now, that was the literal experience of the people of Israel during the Exodus time and the metaphorical experience of all believers after them. Right? We must remember how impossible it would be for the Jews to free themselves. There was no greater power that existed during that time frame but the Egyptian army. Similarly, people have no hope of saving themselves and taking themselves out of the slavery to sin. Only by God's saving work is that possible. Scripture declares, for you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, Paul also uses this slavery metaphor uh, primarily in Romans and Galatians. He says in Romans 6, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, uh, which leads to righteousness. Now, this helps us to see that our God not only conquered death, but he freed slaves. And thirdly, we learn that he commands obedience. Now, what does obedience demonstrate? We show that we believe that God's ways are better than our ways. We believe that, we, that God has authority over us, and we display his renewed image in our lives, which again brings him glory. But what's the problem that we face seeking to obey the Lord's commands? Well, every one of us knows that we fall short of the glory of God. And so, the old covenant was designed to be futile. It was designed to fail, 
to prove to us an old covenant that depended on man's ability to keep the law would always fail. Therefore, we need Jesus, the only one who could live that perfect life that we have failed to live. And so the Lord never intended His people to find eternal redemption in just trying harder. You ever feel that sometimes? You hear, you know, read stuff, and it's just like, oh, I just need my pep talk. I just got to try harder. That's not the good news in the Christian life. The good news is about what Jesus already did, and you're receiving that by faith. Paul declared the good news to us in 2 Timothy chapter 1 when he said, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The salvation event of the Exodus gave us the metaphorical language to better understand what Jesus did for sinners like us. All the Old Testament imagery that we're given advances the gospel of Jesus. It says in Romans 15, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Does that describe your heart? Are you full of hope? Do you have the eternal hope of life with God forever? Do you believe that Jesus lived the perfect life that you failed to live? That he died the death that your rebellious sins deserve and that he rose again from the dead so that by faith in him alone you can have certainty of the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. If you believe that, my friends, you are a new creation. Now, if you're familiar with First and Second Peter, you may hear where Peter derives some of this salvation language from when I read Exodus 19. Listen for some of these phrases. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So why would God save sinners like us? Because he chose us to be his treasured possession. Do you view yourself that way? Do you say, I am God's treasured possession? Now, we don't say that we're treasured because we're such obedient children. We are treasured because God has placed that value on us. He gave us his image. And then in Christ, he gave us his righteousness to declare us righteous, to pay all of our sin debt, and to unite us to himself by faith. You are precious and priceless because it was the life of Jesus that gave you your value. It was him paying that debt. Do you view yourself as a kingdom of priests and of a holy nation? 
We have the Spirit indwelling us as believers. We have access to the throne of grace. We can intercede for one another in prayer. We can pray for the lost who are dead in sin. Nothing we can do to raise their dead souls, but we can pray and ask the Spirit to bring life as the Word goes forth, to bring those dead souls to life. We can pray for marriages to be redeemed. We can pray for prodigal children. We can pray for God's church to grow in holiness. God loves to answer those prayers that we might be a light shining on a hill. So then it reminds us of what the Apostle Peter actually said in his first letter, second chapter, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, this is where the link comes into as far as our mission goes, the purpose clause, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are not saved by our obedience. We are saved unto obedience to enjoy the intimacy of a true relationship with God. Jesus said, thus you will know them by their fruits. Now, as we move through this Ten Commandments series, I want you to remember how much your God loves you, how much He wants you to enjoy that intimate fellowship with Him on a daily basis as you learn to walk in obedience with Him. But he also wants you to make known to all nations the excellencies of who he is so that they too might walk with Jesus. And that's why Jesus said, this mission that he gave us, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Amen. Father, we come to you tonight and acknowledge what you have done. There's nothing we can do to break through and to make you do anything for us. We await your work. We depend upon your grace. And Lord, we know that we are not all that we should be at this exact moment, but we are so grateful that though we are under construction, you will indeed complete the work that you have begun. But we want to dwell and meditate upon those excellencies of you who have called us out of darkness and into your wonderful light. And we want to share that light with a dark world now more than ever. Lord, help us to have the boldness to open our mouths and to share who you are, what you have done for sinners like us, that those whom you have ripened and prepared with ears to hear might rejoice along with us of the saving grace of Jesus. Lord, you can put that song in our hearts to sing the mighty power of God. Amen.